0: The scripture reading today is taken from Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 19. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press and toward the goal for the price of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will, will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Let me get set up here. We have been, look. if you're new and visiting with us this morning, we've been looking at uh, the book of Philippians, Paul's letter to the Philippian church, and we've been doing something special this fall. We uh, gather in home meetings throughout the city in different neighborhoods during the week, and we are going along and studying this letter uh, based on the parts of the text that we study on Sundays, and so it's a way to move through the text together and uh, be developed by the word together, and so today we're in, it's part 10... Of 13, it's 10, the 10th sermon in a 13-part series on Philippians. Today we're going to be looking at uh, maturity, Christian maturity. Now, uh, it's appropriate today, uh, being Marathon Day, and a lot of friends coming in from New York to race because they couldn't race in New York, to talk and open up this subject to us by thinking about racing. And I want to bring your mind back to an actual race, That was during the Triangular Contest meet between Scotland, England, and Ireland, and it was at Stoke-on-Trent in England, and this was July 1923. And what happened is there were a group of runners, and they were racing, and early on in the race, one of the runners got tripped and fell off the side of the track and into the grass, and the other runners, all Olympic-caliber runners, were about 20 yards ahead before he was able to get up and start running again. And so the runner got up and started running again. he closed that 20 yards, and he passed all of the runners and finished first in the race, collapsing uh, at the finish line. He had taken everything that he was, everything that he was, and he aimed it right towards making the finish line his own. He wanted to do that. Now, some of you have seen a movie or heard the story about chariots of fire, and this is Eric Liddell, and he, uh, he was the person on whom that story was based. He gave it us all. What we're talking about today is what Christian maturity looks like. What does maturity look like in the Christian faith? And we're going to talk about the fact that it looks like an ongoing process of taking everything you are and directing yourselves towards making the resurrection your own. Taking everything you are and making the resurrection your own. All right, And we're going to look at a couple of things to help us unpack that. First, we're going, to, we're going to look at this agenda for making the resurrection your own. We're going to ask why. Why do you do it? Why do you need to do it as a person of faith? And verse 13 is going to answer that for us. The motivation is because Christ Jesus has made you his own in the gospel. Okay, But then we're going to look at how you do it, and there's a lot to be said there. Verse 14 14 says, Working with the end in mind, we strain forward to what the resurrection lies ahead. What lies ahead? And then verse 16, we're going to hold on to what we've attained as we do this, as we strive ahead towards the resurrection. So let's get into that. Let's first unpack why you do it. Why do you direct everything you are towards making the resurrection your own? Why would you do that? Why is that such a central part to who we are as we live our lives as Christians? This is going to be brief because the answer is very simple. Paul says, again, because Christ Jesus has made you his own. Now, I want to if somebody to ask you, what is Christianity? What does it mean to be a Christian? What is Christianity about? And there are a lot of different answers that you've heard growing up over the years. Some of you grown up in the church and are familiar with lots of varieties of answers. Some of you haven't been in the church, haven't grown up in the church, haven't been exposed to Christianity, so you have your answer based on probably what the media shows Christians to be. But the, the issue is this, and Paul's been unpacking this, so if you're new today, just bear with this. The issue is this. It's not your impressive spiritual accomplishment. It's not your impressive spiritual accomplishment. We tend to think of spirituality naturally as climbing a mountain or uh, doing some sort of spiritual feat or being able to pray a lot, and that's not it. The issue, the center of Christianity is that it's about the impressive spiritual accomplishment of Jesus on your behalf. So it's not what you do, it's what Jesus has done. What does Christianity mean? That's at the center of it. Okay, Jesus' accomplishment was to make you his own if you come to God through his work that he did and not the work that you do. He's the one who said, it is finished. He's the one who said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He's the one who's called the alpha and the omega of your faith, the beginning and the end of your faith. So you have to rest on what he has done. But when you say, why are you a Christian? Or how do you become a Christian? When, you, when that question is asked to you, what is your answer? What have you heard? There's a, a pastor named R.C. Sproul, and he tells a story of how he uh, had a group of people sitting around a living room one evening, and he had asked one of the young women in the group, so how, why are you a Christian? And so her answer was a normal kind of answer. A normal answer you've probably heard and maybe even used yourself, which is, well, I accepted Christ into my heart. Good. R.C. Sproul said, good. But if you know, if you've heard R.C. Sproul at all, you'll know he'll pursue that. And so he said, but why? Why did you accept Christ into your heart? She said, well, I was open to the gospel and I believed. Yes, but why were you open to the gospel and believed? Well, I... I had the faith to do that? Yes, but why did you have the faith to do that? And he kept pressing her. In the end, she had to admit that she had seen herself as the beginning of her faith, as the end of her faith, that she was locating her belief and the gospel in her own actions of faith. That's not what Paul teaches here. It's because Jesus has sought you out right? What does Paul say? Because Jesus has made me his own. I am a a typical guy in a lot of ways. I like action movies just as much as the next guy. I watch my show. I can't wait to see the new James Bond film. Um, I have another side of my movie watching, though, which is that I like emotional, sentimental, romantic flicks. I'm sorry, to, I'm sorry to unveil that to you, but you can see me tearing up over a good romance, you know, Love Actually or Crazy Stupid Love. And uh, I recently watched, I was sick uh, a little while ago, a couple weeks ago, and I watched uh, My Big Fat Greek Wedding, and I really enjoyed it. And there's a, there's a great moment in that, in that movie where Tula Portokalos is with Ian Miller, and they're talking about getting married. And Ian Miller says, I love you. And she won't let it pass. She says, but why? Why do you love me? And his answer was fantastic. His answer was this, because I came alive when I met you. I came alive when I met you. In the same way, when we talk about our Lord Jesus and our faith, Jesus says to you, why? Why do you love me? And our answer is, because I came alive when I met you. You brought life to me. And so the only natural response is a a gracious response of love in return. So I told you it would be brief. That's why. That's why we press on towards making the resurrection our own. Jesus made us his own, okay? But now let's take some time and unpack how. How do we direct everything we are towards making the resurrection our own? How do we do it? What's it look like day-to-day, in community, in life together with one another? Verse 14, working with the end in mind. Paul talks about the goal, the prize, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, if, uh, if any of you have struggled with organizational stuff, in life, just getting organized, just trying to be organized. One of the, You probably run into some of the different planners, right? You have the Franklin Covey Planner, which is based on Benjamin Franklin's notebook. And the idea with that, behind that planner and organizing your schedule from day to day is to begin with the end in mind, right? Or David Allen. He's one of my personal favorites because he looks at all of life, not just your work life, and he helps you to balance uh, everything in line with what your overarching principles of your life are about. And so he talks about... Um, He uses an airport analogy. And he'll say, when you're thinking about planning your schedule, first thing you do is look at your next actions. That's the runway level, right? What are all the next actions that you need to do? That's the runway level. And then 10,000 feet up, what are my roles and responsibilities? Who am I? Well, I'm a a brother and a a son and a a nephew and a father and a pastor. So think about your roles and responsibilities. Next level up, 20,000 feet um, think about your various projects, right? I might be reversing a little bit, but that's okay, you get the idea. 20,000 feet, you're thinking about your pr- various projects. And the idea is that projects are all of the next collection of next actions that you need to do. It takes more than one action to get it done, and it's striving for an outcome. Beyond that, how is your personal and professional life going to change in the next year? What about three years? And then the last level, the 50,000 foot level, is why are we here? Right? And so he, in his organizational process, in helping you get things done day-to-day, that's his book, Getting Things Done, helping you get things done day-to-day, he has an aspect of beginning with the end in mind in there, too. It's popular in organizational theory, right? It's also part of the gospel. Work with the end in mind. The goal, the prize, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, verse 14. Now, there's more, to than that. As we direct ourselves towards the resurrection, making it our own, it's not just that we work hard with the end in mind. We also forget what lies behind. Forget what? Last week we talked about it. We have to forget both the bad and the good things, right? Paul talked about the flesh and how he has to leave that behind. But the interesting thing is, sometimes when he talks about flesh, he means the the ways that we fail, the ways that we fail one another, live for ourselves, the ways that we... um, do wrong things instead of right things, the way that we're broken sexually, the way that we're broken emotionally, the way that we're broken in a relationship in, in and psychologically, and all of the other kinds of ways that we kind of get bent. Paul sometimes uses the word flesh to describe that, but last week we saw that he uses the word flesh to describe his religious achievement, his accomplishment, good things. He was the equivalent of a great seminary professor, and yet he called that flesh. So it's not just your bad things, but it's your good things that you need to leave behind when you come to Christ. When you think about, why am I a Christian? Christ made you his own, and you have to leave those other things behind. It's like the, um, the great parable of the prodigal son. We talked this about in the In-Covenant member retreat uh, just a couple weeks ago. The parable is usually taught where there's a younger brother, and the younger brother says, Dad, give me everything that would have been mine if you had died and I'm going to take that, and I'm going to go. And he goes, and he spends it on riotous living. He lives and hangs out with prostitutes and engages them. He does, throws parties with his friends, and he he spends it all, and he goes broke. And he ends up being homeless and really hungry, and he's in the, uh, he's feeding pods, seed pods to pigs. And he thinks about that, and he's like, wow, if I... I'm here just being hungry at these pods that I'm feeding the pigs. If I just went back to my father's household, I know that he's gracious enough to let me come in and at least eat like a hired hand. At least I'd be safe. So he resolves to go back, right? But so there's a way in which we look at the younger brother and we say, uh, today we say, hey, I'm like the younger brother. I've rejected my father. I've rejected God and spirituality. I've rejected the gospel, and I've gone and lived the way that I want to live. But your father wants to bring you back, and he wants to throw his robe around you and put his ring on your finger, and he wants to throw a feast for you, and he wants to welcome you back because you're alive and not dead. But the thing is, is a lot of pastors, when they tell that story, they only tell that part of the story. And there's an elder brother, and it's a full part of the story too, and the elder brother says, when he sees the father's graciousness towards the younger son, look... He wouldn't even go in to see the father. He says, look, I've been here. I've been slaving for you. I've been working for you all these years. And you didn't even give me a little bit of dinner to have with my friends. I couldn't even throw a little party. I've been slaving for you. And this son of yours, not even my brother anymore. And what that part of the parable shows is that it's possible to relate to religious doing as a way to avoid your relationship with the father. A way to avoid your relationship with God. And so it's important you've got to remember that part of the gospel, part of how we do this, part of how we press on towards the resurrection is to leave both the bad and the good things behind. Nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross I cling. You remember? Words of him that we sing sometimes. So we need to forget what's left behind and leave it behind. But now we come to one of the most important notions about maturing as a Christian. It's one of the most important notions. Are you ready? You've got to realize that you have need. You have utter need. Christ had to come in your place. He had to substitute himself for you. There was no other way to get your relationship with God back. You have need. Paul talks about it even as a Christian, even transformed by Christ, he says, it's not that I've already attained this, right? As, and, and I do not consider myself as already, like, laid hold of this resurrection that we're pursuing. So he realizes his need. Now, the normal way that we do things is that we say we're not ready. You know? Look around at your home meeting, Right? A lot of your home meeting leaders have been working hard at leading their home meetings and or looking around the other needs of the church. And some of the, some of the ways you look at those needs that you see is you say, well, but I'm not ready. You know, I don't know the Bible well enough. I don't know how to pray well enough. I don't have it all together as a Christian. I'm not mature as a Christian. I don't, you know, I, somebody else has got to do it because I'm not ready. What you see here is completely counter to that. It's striking. Paul is saying only if you don't have it all together as a Christian can you begin to step up into leadership. Only can you begin to meet needs with your gifts that he's given to you. It's only when you do that. You've got to realize your need. So you can apprentice with your home meeting leader. We talked about this at a leadership meeting last week uh, where we, we were talking about what does it look like to develop leaders at all levels? What does that look like? And one of the things we talked about is just apprenticeship. It just looks like apprenticeship. You know, one of the things your home meeting leaders do is they facilitate the discussion around the text. They help draw a conversation and point you back to Jesus and point you back to the text and say, what do you see there? Good, tell me more. Now, what it might look like here, no, you don't have to have it all together, right? But a lot of you show potential for doing what they're doing and facilitating. So what it would mean would be to come alongside of them and just shadow them as they do it and keep in the back of your mind the kinds of questions that come up as you. Well, why did they ask the question that way and not this way? And then you talk about it afterwards. And the next study, you lead and facilitate the discussion, and your leader comes alongside of you and shadows you and doesn't say anything. They're there in case you need the backup, but they shadow you, and they keep in the back of their mind things that they observe, and you can talk about it. Done. You're not just thrown in, but you're also stepping up even before you think you're ready because that's the way the gospel works. It's only when you realize your need that you can be effective in ministry and go out. Uh, The same as I was having a a conversation with Chad Easton. He's um, just elected by the congregation to be uh, a new deacon. And Chad and I were talking. We were having a pint at ERA, kind of cool place up on Poplar. And um, we were talking about this idea, well, what does it look for deacons? What does it look like for deacons to do this kind of, you know, not throw you in, but develop you through apprenticeship, leadership at all levels, taking a chance and plugging yourself in? And I said, look, let's take, there's an urgent care relief fund. Did you know about this? It's $250 or less uh, for people who have urgent needs. And uh, there's some process around what it takes to uh, to give that to somebody, to help them out. And so what does that look like? Well, Chad said, mostly emails and phone calls. I said, great, loop them into the email and phone call. They can listen in. You can talk about what they heard. Next time they can input, and you can listen in for how they're doing, and you can give them feedback. He said, that sounds really simple. (laughs) It is. The gospel's not hard. We've got to live it out in simple ways, okay? So, but realizing our need has a contrast in this passage. We see in verse 18 that there are those who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. And what this is essentially is not recognizing your own need, not believing that you have a need for Jesus as a Savior. And so, um, again, I, I didn't realize that I used R.C. try twice in this sermon, so I'm going to use him again. Sorry about that. But he, uh, he comes up again. One of the things that he writes, against, um, writes about is this. He says, our country, in part, is built upon freedom of speech and freedom of religion, right? And what that means is citizens have the freedom to pursue their expression or non-expression of faith without coercion from the state. It at least means that. And he says that's very important. He writes that he would support that by his dying breath. He would support that freedom by his dying breath. But he goes on to make this point. He said... It is an equally valid option to pursue Protestant Christianity as it is Catholic Christianity. It's an equally valid option to pursue Buddhism as it is atheism, and they may be equally valid, but that doesn't mean that they're equally true. And he goes on to press the point. He says, how can Jesus both be God, historic Christianity, and not God, atheism, Buddhism, and other options at the same time? He says tongue-in-cheek, one of you is lying, right? One of you is lying. And he also says, how can the apostolic witness, which is what he's appealing to, walking in as enemies of the cross of Christ, everything that the apostles are testifying to, is this is the basis. This is where we get the basis for our faith. This is where we get the basis for who we are. How can the apostolic witness be our authority in spiritual matters and not be our authority in spiritual matters at the same time? Paul says to hold an equally valid view of who Jesus is and what he has done is to walk as an enemy of the cross of Christ. So there's a contrast there, and that contrast looks like different things. One of the ways in verse 19 that we see that it looks like is it's the opposite of directing everything you are towards the resurrection, and it's holding on to the good and bad, not forgetting what lies behind, right? Working without the end in mind. Just as if you started to build with wood the frame for a house... You can't suddenly switch and say, I would like this to be the frame for a guitar, right? They're two different things. And when you don't begin with having the end in mind, Paul says that leads to destruction. Just like a house frame doesn't lead to a well-built guitar frame, in the end, if you're trying to build a guitar by building a house frame, you'd have to destroy that frame and start again. It won't go well with you if you try to build a guitar by building a frame for a house. It won't go well with you. It'll fall apart. He also says that our worship is in our appetites. Now, he says in verse 19 that your God is in is your belly. One of the things that I uh, read recently was an article by David Brooks in the New York Times where he talks about the idea that we are working really hard. We're working really hard to do what? And this has changed over the last few generations. We're working really hard to secure our options to remain open. So the reason why we work hard at our job is to make sure that we've secured our options, that they remain open so that we can be free. But here Paul teaches that we're actually bound by our appetite for keeping our options open. Now, I'm gonna press it home a little bit for us. I've talked to a lot of you personally. A lot of you have been here for a while. A lot of you have, some of you have good relationships and you're flourishing in your relationships here. But there are a lot of you who have been here for a while that don't feel like you have the level of depth in your relationships that you need to flourish in the gospel. You feel a little bit isolated. You feel a little bit alone, right? And you're crying out. You say, I want connection. I want some depth in my relationship. I want to be able to pursue people on that level and have people pursue me on that level. I want to be known and cared for on that level. Okay. When you triple book your social calendars, because those are great options... Right? And you want to keep your options open, you're not going to get that kind of level of depth. You're not going to get it. It won't work. You're going to be bound by your appetite for what's most appealing. You're choosing the exciting over the important. It's like a, there's a story about a man who wrote, you know, like he would read things and they would touch him and he'd be like, wow, that is amazing. That's an amazing paragraph. I'm going to take that and I'm going to put it in a book and I'm going to paste it in the book that I have. And I'm going I'm to do that with everything that touches me that way. And I'm going to put it in that book. And then when I open the book, I'm just going to be blown away because it's going to be so great. All these great things are just going to keep jumping out at me. And so he went and did this for a number of years, and he snipped and cut and pasted and put it all in the book. He sat down one day, and he opened the book, and he said, Ah, I'm ready to be blown away. And he opened the book, and it didn't touch him the same way. He wasn't as excited about the same things. He didn't account for the fact that he changes and that those things don't supply everything that he needs, and they don't have enough catalyst in and of themselves to bring his heart to song. So we can't worship by our appetites. There's also confusion that happens. In 19, we see that there's confusion, that there's glory not in what should be gloried in, but the reverse. There's pride in what... You should not be proud of. You know what this is like? I was thinking about this. This is like Gollum. You know, Gollum. Now, when it comes to eating sashimi, Gollum had it right. He likes it raw and slithering, right? (laughs) But when it comes to eating a coney, and he bites into the rabbit, and he tries to pull the skin off and eat it that way, Sam rebukes him. He says, You're going to make Frodo sick. You can't eat it that way. The only way to have a coney, everyone knows, is to braise it properly. And so he stews this coney over the fire, and he puts potatoes in it. And Gollum is, is made sick himself because he's got it upside down. He's got it backwards. He's got it reversed. He's confused. He's glorying in what not, should not be gloried in. Paul says later, whatever you do, whether you eat, drink, whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. And lastly, one of the ways to miss this is to have your your mindset, verse 19, mindset on things that are temporary and provisional, not permanent and everlasting. A simple illustration from the movie Finding Nemo. There's a little yellow fish living in a fish tank. And that little yellow fish spends a lot of time around this little treasure chest. And he, he... just hovers in front of this treasure chest, and it opens up, and there are bubbles. He says, my bubbles, 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 my bubbles. And then the treasure chest closes, and the bubbles go away. And he stays there, and he waits more for the bubbles. What happens to the bubbles when they hit the top of the water, the fish tank? They're gone. He's put his hope in something temporary, something provisional, not the permanent, not the everlasting. So we've got to be able to do that. You've got to realize your need. You can't do these things that Paul contrasts uh, living out of the gospel with. But you also, verse 14, we see that we have to strain forward to, for what lies ahead. You've got to know why you press on to the resurrection. You've got to know why you press on to it. It's hard. It's hard to remember that Jesus has made you his own, and this is the reason, this is the motive. When you feel the weight of life, when you feel the weight of your brokenness, when you feel the weight of everything going wrong, or at least something's going wrong, it's hard to remember that Jesus has made you own. It's a strain to remember. It's like I was thinking about Snape in the movie Harry Potter, in the whole series. Snape is not a likable guy. And he is just, you know, he, it seems like he's just working corruptly and for corrupt things and for Slytherin House, and everybody hates him, and everybody's scared of him, and he's nasty and he's curt, and he's, you know, he does everything he can, it seems, to uh, foil Harry's and Hermione's and Ron's plan. It's hard to like him. And yet, at the end of the entire story, Harry describes Snape as the bravest man he ever knew. Why? Snape had encountered love for Lily, and that love had changed him so profoundly that despite all of his brokenness, despite all of his inability, despite all of the darkness within him, he was willing to work for the good and remember and strive towards it because that love had changed him. And in the end, he gave his life for it in a very powerful way. You've got to know to press on to the resurrection. You've got to know to forget the bad things and the good things and strain forward to what lies ahead. It's like the movie Up with Carl and Ellie, right? Have you seen this movie Up? I love the uh, animated films. And Up is about a guy who falls in love as a boy. He has this... uh, he has this marvelous sort of fantasy as a boy about this adventure who's current in his day goes off around the world looking for birds and he meets this girl in the process Ellie and they grow up and they live life together and they grow old together and Ellie gets in the first I tell you in the first 10 minutes of the movie it's so hard Ezra sits between my my wife and I and and looks back and forth at us as we're watching just the first 10 minutes cuz we're both just weeping it's so sad you know, Ellie ends up dying, and Carl's all alone as an old man. And the story begins there, first ten minutes of the movie. How does Carl deal with life in this? And one of the things you find at the end of the movie is that Ellie had, they had a picture book, a scrapbook of all her dreams and everything they wanted to do together, and all the places they wanted to head together. And at the end of the movie, Carl opens up that scrapbook, and Ellie, unbeknownst to him, had left, after the last picture they had had put in there together, had left a section saying, go have your own adventure now, a new adventure. One that continues on and doesn't hold so tightly to the past, doesn't hold so tightly to what you were holding to before, but it's new. And it frees Carl. And he makes friends with a Boy Scout throughout the movie, and he's able to have freedom and newness of adventure <laughs> and relationship as he goes on, Right? Strain forward to what lies ahead. Forget the bad and good things. Like Carl with his scrapbook, Jesus has written something new for you. All right, friends, so we've looked at why you direct everything uh, you are at the resurrection, why you're motivated to do so. Verse 13, right, because Christ has made you his own. We've also been looking at how you should direct everything you are towards the resurrection. Verse 14, working with the end in mind, straining forward to what lies ahead. And when you look at how you should strain forward, you also need to do this last thing. Verse 16, hold on to what we've attained. Verse 17, we see this. We need the apostle's example. Paul says that we need to imitate him. He's an apostle. What does that mean? I watched my friend Kevin came in last weekend, and he was cutting some lumber. And one of the things that he did when he was cutting some lumber, he used this iron triangle. You guys have done repairs and uh, some construction at home. You know this iron triangle, it, it, it rests on the edge of the board. And the other end gives you a straight edge. So when you put the boards together, you cut the board, you put them together, they fit right. And he used, and so that was a, an essential part of the tool. and directed all of his measurements, all of his cuts. He relied on it to make sure the work that he was done and was doing would be true. And so, in verse 17, the apostolic witness, the Bible, the news about Jesus and who he is and what he's done, the gospel, right, It's like that triangle. We rely upon it to know if what we are doing in life is in line with the truth. So we need the apostolic witness, but we also need each other. Look at what he says in 17, join in, join in imitation, Right? The apostolic witness was not merely for an individualistic Christianity. It's not less than that. We encounter God personally as individuals. But you'll see time and time again in the New Testament and throughout Scripture that Christianity is to be lived out together, in community, together. It was meant for us to join with one another in our imitation of living according to what is true. I was watching a special one time on squirrels and bird feeders that are meant to prevent the squirrels from getting into the bird food, right? Because if you ever watch squirrels, they're really crafty, and you you get these bird feeders, you put the bird food in, and they come in, and they steal all the seed, and the birds don't have anything to eat, right? And so there was a group of physicists who got together, think, we're going to do this, we're going to create the squirrel-proof bird feeder, and so... They set out, and they failed, and they set out, and they failed, and they set out, and they failed. It was amazing. Sometimes it took them a matter of minutes to figure out a clever device meant to protect the bird food. Sometimes it took a day or two, but you would see the squirrels would, different squirrels would come and try and attempt and work it, and they would piece together different kinds of strategies, and all of a sudden one of them would crack it, and then they all could do it, right? They, they built what they thought is is the final thing. They thought, no one's going to get around this. No squirrel's going to get around this. They moved away from all the trees from which they could drop onto the feeder. They had this thing protecting it from the ground. The squirrels couldn't crawl up, crawl up the pole. They couldn't do it. And so it lasted for several weeks. And they thought, we've done it. We've outsmarted the squirrels. we protected our bird food. Several weeks into it, the squirrels stumbled on working together. They figured out how, by one propping the other up, they could actually undo the trap and get around and get the food, and then they all knew how to do it, right? We need each other while we join in imitating the apostolic witness. We need each other. We can't do it on our own. There are lots of things that would hinder us, but together, with our resources pooled, it's powerful, and that's what the gospel is meant for in community. We also need action. He talks about our walk, being in in accord with the apostolic witness. It's not just on Sundays, right? It's not just coming to worship here. It's not singing some songs that are great, led by a great worship team. It's not praying a little bit together. It is those things, but it's it's not less than those things, but it's more than those things, right? We've talked about loving God. And one of the things that's important to us this year together is learning how to read the Bible. Praying through it, applying it to life. Look at the home meetings in the back of your program. If you're not in one, find one. You need others. If you're going to love God through His Word, you got to remember that we need to hold on to what we've attained as we press forward to the resurrection. You need to work through the Word together to do that. We also, about at Liberty Fairmount, we're about loving people, both one another and others. You know, look. One of the things we looked at early on was the book of Hebrews. A section there talks about how the word Philadelphia, our namesake here in the city, is about brotherly love. So it's important. It's commanded. We need to love one another. We need to find ways to do that. And we need to know each other well enough to know our needs to be able to do that. And some of you really have those relationships and some of you don't. But let's remember that we need to press on to that. But right next to the word in Hebrews for Philadelphia is the word philaxenia. It's not the new city down the road but it could be, and that means love of other, love of stranger, right? And so we're just not about loving one another and in a sort of enclosed system. One of the reasons Jesus put his church here, one of the reasons Jesus lives in you, one of the reasons Jesus invites you into being part of his people through his gospel is so that you can love others, you can extend hospitality, you can look for ways to help meet the needs that you see around you. We talked about leadership at all levels. That's one way to love one another, right? Look for ways that you can use your gifts and help out and, and plug in. But also, who are your neighbors? What are their names? What do they need? You can observe that over time as you get to know them. Love of other, Philoxenia. So we've got loving God, loving the people, but we've also got loving our city. Uh, when my friend Kevin was in town, we were, we were walking around together and doing different things. We tested the cheesesteak uh, Pats and Geno's, and we, we ate them right after each other, and try to try to get a sense of which one is ours, which one's going to be the one that we root for. Uh, they were both good, but we ended up on Pats, I think we did. And uh, for various reasons, I won't go into now. But the thing that we noticed as we were walking around Philly and doing different things, and I was showing them around a little bit, was that people were grumpy. People were grumpy, and it was about, uh, you know, everything was sort of about my rights, my rights over yours. You know, if you're driving, there was an article that came out recently where it was like the driver, the pedestrian, and the biker all think that they are first. They have the right of way, right? It's my rights. And Kevin, being an outsider, he was wise, and he said, look, the revolution's still on. It's all about my rights in the city of Philadelphia, right? Revolution is still on. Um, what would it look like for us to engage in a gospel revolution where your rights are ahead of mine in the way that you interact with the city and the people in the city. Your rights are ahead of my own for your good and for God's glory. you got to remember that one of, the, one of the ways that we came through this letter of Philippians was Philippians 2. you remember what it said there? It says this, "'Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus,' who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Love the city. Have this mind among yourself. it will make a difference. All right, to summarize, look, first we covered your motivation for making the resurrection your own. The key point is that what you you do, you do that, you make the resurrection your own because Jesus has made you his own. So you've got to do that. Second, we covered working with the end in mind and straining toward what lies ahead. The key point is that your effort in life is aimed at the resurrection life, which is urban, by the way. We'll tell about that story another time. But we end in an urban setting in Scripture, in redemptive history. When it all ends and every tear is wiped away, it's an urban setting that we'll end in. And third, we covered holding on to what we have attained. The key point is that it's only together that we can square our lives to the scripture and the gospel and not get off. We need each other for that. We get blind by our own inabilities and our own sin and our own desires. The resurrection shapes everything about maturing in the Christian faith. So let's together take everything in our faith and everything in who we are And let's together direct it towards making the resurrection our own. Will you join me in Paul's instruction to do that? To make the resurrection our own together? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that you uh, give us a message of rootedness and joy in, in your servant Paul's letter to the Philippian church and a letter to us. That being rooted and established in Christ... We're able to have uh, rejoice. We're able to uh, glory in you. We're able to glory in your salvation. We're able to uh, have as the reason for the hope in our hearts, your great and steadfast love. We ask that as we move forward together that you would teach us how to strain together corporately towards the great uh, attainment of the resurrection. Why? Because you've made us your own through grace and nothing we have in and of ourselves. Bless us, Lord, as we move forward together. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.